Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got a special bonus episode for you today. Even when I'm away from the Disrupting Japan microphone, I'm frequently on stage talking about startups and innovation in Japan. Last month, I moderated a panel discussion at Coral Capital's Bilinguals and Gaijin in Startups event. Our panel focused on what foreigners should expect when working for Japanese startups and what Japanese startups can do better to support their foreign employees. It was a great conversation with four amazing people from four of Japan's most interesting startups. We had Tez Sawanabori of Connected Robotics. Jordan Fisher of Zahitomo, Takanori Sato of Shipio, and Tatsuo Kinoshita of Merkari. Now, longtime listeners are going to know a few of these names, and future listeners are going to hear from a couple more of them. But for today, this is a bonus episode. So the recording is straight off the board. There's no editing, there's no transcription, and there's no clever summary at the end. But there is a lot of good information here, so I really wanted to share it with you. If you've ever thought about working for a Japanese startup, I think you're really going to enjoy this. Before we get into the discussion, let me introduce myself, and we'll have everyone introduce themselves very briefly. But hopefully, by the end of our brief panel discussion today, you'll have a little bit different perspective on how to. Find a job at a multicultural startup in Japan, or if you are a multicultural startup in Japan, how you should be better recruiting. So, to kick things off, I'll just briefly introduce myself. My name is Tim Romero. I run a podcast called Disrupting Japan. It's、uh, we sit down, we talk with Japanese startup founders, and we talk not so much about their company, but what it's like to be an innovator in a culture that prizes conformity and. And their day-to-day struggles, and I view it as a lens. It's it's a way of looking at Japan through the lens of startups,、um, and that's me. So let's let me throw that、uh, down to Tatsuo. Yep. So can I introduce myself? Yes, clear enough. Okay. Yep. Okay. So my name is Tatsuo.、Uh, I'm from Merukari. Uh, let me introduce myself briefly. You know,、um, I started my career in Procter Gamble and HR in Japan.、Uh, I'm growing up in Japan、uh, and educated in Japan and joined the、uh, Procter Gamble, which is multinational company. That's why I was forced to use English. <laughs> and then,、uh, then I joined the uh, GE uh, in the HR career. I spent 17 years in the HR, you know,、uh, in the HR field. So last four years, I was in Malaysia、uh, in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I was、uh, you know, in the Asia HQ role, covering all Asia, Asia Pacific countries as a、uh, HR leader. And then you know, I decided to you know, came back to Japan, and I you know,、uh, decided to join the Merukari、uh, December last year.、Uh, the Merukari, you know,、uh, the reason why I just decided to join Merukari, because Merukari is a kind of you know,、uh, in the when you know,、uh, the company was launched. You know, There's a clear mission、uh, going to the global, so to create a global marketplace you know, where anyone can buy and sell. And now it's you know, doing business in the Japan, US, but kind of like to expand more countries, you know. And I really help,、uh, like to help, you know,、uh, these companies, you know, grow not just only for Japan, but for the you know,、uh, international. So that's myself. Thank you,、uh, Jordan. Yeah.、Uh, hey everyone, my name is Jordan.、Uh, Jordan Fisher, co-founder and CEO of Zehitomo.com. So my background, very quickly, is I grew up in the U.S., born and raised in New York, went to college out in California,、uh, studied computer science. All my friends, when I graduated in 2008, went off to Silicon Valley,、uh, which is where everything was happening at the time. But I was weird, and I came to Japan, worked in finance for around eight years,、uh, both as an engineer, as a project manager, as a sales trader,、uh, across a number of different roles. And、uh, three years ago,、uh, worked with my co-founder, and we launched Zehitomo.com. We first announced it in July、uh, 2017, and since then have been growing、uh, pretty rapidly,、uh, doing our Series A, raising around five and a half million to date,、uh, and doing hopefully our, our next fundraising、uh, later this year as well. So our team is around 30 people right now,、uh, still relatively、uh, relatively small compared to Merkari, but.、Um, 
but we've started figuring out our uh, in our HR structures and how we're going to grow and have a pretty aggressive plan. Um, what we do is we are a marketplace for local services. So all the jobs that happen offline, finding your personal trainer, your pet sitter, a photographer for this event, um, anything where you're connecting with somebody offline uh, to get a service done, so we call local services. And we see it as one of the largest, uh, most fragmented and non-transparent sectors uh, in the consumer economy still today. So uh, we're set on bringing it online, leveling, leveling the playing field for freelancers and small professionals, uh, making it as, as easy as other e-commerce. So thank you. Excellent. Uh, Tez? Hi, uh, my name is Tetsuya Sanobori. I'm from Connected Robotics uh, in Tokyo. Uh, we, we are innovating kitchen tasks by robots, and we are a robotics company. At the same time, we are a food service industry company uh, working for restaurants and also for uh, homes in some projects. Uh, I studied robotics in university and uh, grad school, and I went just after I graduated uh, grad school, I started uh, a restaurant business uh, because I was raised in a, raised in a, a small but cozy restaurant owned by my uh, grandparents, so I wanted to have a nice restaurant of my own. Uh, but I worked for a uh, restaurant company and uh, worked uh, like 100 hours per week and I was so exhausted and I came back to a robotics company and I've been working for robotics uh, about 10 years and uh, two years ago I started this business uh, to, uh, to make it easier for workers in restaurants uh, by robots uh, cooking and helping other kitchen tasks and uh, so uh, we are uh, fortunately um, growing very fast and uh, uh, we are attracting more and more people but uh, we seriously need more engineers so uh, if you are a robotics engineer please feel free to uh, come to talk with me thank you excellent Ataka? Hi, uh, hey everyone. Uh, my name is Takanori Sato. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Shipio. Uh, Shipio is tackling to uh, digitalization of uh, freight forwarding business. Uh, since uh, I used to work for Mitsui and the company, which is the one of the biggest Japanese uh, trading and investment conglomerate uh, for 10 years. And uh, <coughs> we, right now we have 12 people uh, as a full time, and we raised two US million around two US million dollars last year, and as a pre Series A, and now we are let's say on the way to Series A. Excellent. And what what I think is interesting here is I don't think we could have gotten four more different types of companies up here. In fact, about the only thing that's in common is that everyone up in this everyone up on this stage is is trying to be multicultural and and trying to get multicultural teams to work together. So I, I want to start things off what, with what is probably the very first question you get asked when talking about how to manage multicultural teams. And that's, um, do you have an official language and, or, and, or do you prefer that each individual teams communicate in the way that that they want to, and um, Tatsu, I know that I mean Mercari is big and and multinational, but just in the the Tokyo office, yep. what what's your policy for that? Yeah, so actually, you know, we recently discussed about this, you know, with the management team, and right now, you know, we have a ten percent non-Japanese ratio uh, for the Japan office, and you no, know, um, in in Roppongi office, you know, we have more than two hundred non-Japanese, by the way. And basically, that in terms of hiring standards, you know, we don't require you know, bilingual. So you can say you can speak either English or Japanese. So that's the general, uh, no, uh, discipline or like a, no, operating principle or recruiting standard, right? But uh, what happened is, you know, okay, you know, after we have 200 people, uh, what we are doing is, you know, we are using m many of the interpreters uh, to fill the gap. 
And then we found out, you know, okay, you know, okay, it's not good for temporary base, you know, but not for long-term or sustainable solution, right? And then we started providing you know, language training for both sides. So kind of our policy is, okay, let's find out, let's find out the middle, right? Okay, Japanese speaker needs to learn English, but also non-Japanese speaker also learn Japanese. Okay, let's find a you know, way to you know, uh, communicate without interpreter. So, uh, so, but do you leave it to the the individual teams mm -hmm. to kind of decide, like, all right, the the this this group of ten people seems to be most comfortable in English, so yep. we'll let them. Yeah, right. So, right. so what we have uh, decided is no, not no, they uh, become like a lactan, like asking everyone to you know uh, to to use English uh, as an official. But uh, we decide, okay, let's identify which groups you know, need uh, English communication or which positions need English communication as a as a default. And then if then let's make a the timeline. Okay, let's give a one year. You no, know, okay, for the team we decide to you know how use English and then you know okay so let's make one year and let's you know make you know, the best effort uh, <laughs> to catch up you know uh, so that everyone can speak in English. So All that's right. uh, uh, we are in the you know, we are on the way. Excellent, <laughs> Jordan. You guys, you guys started out with as as like foreign founders. So I'm curious, did you sort of end up doing it the other way? Did you start out in English, and what was your experience? Yeah. So as our team has grown, we've realized that there's obviously a lot of you know really bright engineering talent uh, that doesn't speak Japanese in Japan, and there's also a lot of excellent salespeople uh, that don't speak English in Japan. Uh, and given that we're going after a very domestic market, but we're trying to take more of a Silicon Valley approach and style to it, uh, we thought that the most important thing was our culture, not the language. And so we use both English and Japanese in the workplace, um, but we have one culture and one shared mission. And I think that's a much harder thing to bridge. Um, you know, on top of that, obviously, we do have things. We have like a no allergies policy, so you can't have ego arerugi. You can't be allergic to Japanese if you don't speak the other language, so that there's nobody, you know, not afraid to speak with somebody else. Uh, and, and, you know, we take that pretty seriously. Um, we also do have, you know, like one of our perks is, you know, we offer all sorts of local services. And so, you know, people have, you know, uh, like each Ichimaya in a month that they can use on different local services and trying professionals. So some people do use that for language lessons. Other people use it for different things. But um, we're very strict when it comes down to kind of performance and numbers. Uh, and less strict when it comes down to the spoken language, as long as they can work within the team effectively to uh, to do the job. So for company-wide meetings and company-wide announcements, all that's bilingual. Uh, yeah. So the engineering teams. Uh, so within engineering is most primarily English. Within sales is primarily Japanese, and then the teams that straddle between those marketing and operations are kind of both. But for a company-wide, uh, we'll usually have the written text in the opposite language of the spoken text. All right. All right. That's interesting. Um, Tez, what, how about you? Have, have, are you using, so it's a lot of uh, software engineers, particularly like business software engineers, tend to uh, come from abroad. But I've noticed most Japanese robotics startups tend to have a lot of Japanese, they have a primarily Japanese engineering workforce. Has that been the case with you guys too? Oh yes, uh, since we are robotics companies and uh, other robotics might be uh, the same, uh, we have to negotiate with other uh, companies uh, to make things. Uh, but in software, uh, we hire a lot of foreigners uh, from abroad. But uh, as a hardware engineer, uh, they have to uh, talk with uh, customers and partners and uh, other members a lot, so uh, they have to speak Japanese. Uh, yeah, Japanese. But um, uh, as a software engineer, we require just a good command of English. And uh, I usually put uh, more emphasis uh, on Japanese to speak English. Uh, otherwise, uh, they don't learn English <laughs> and don't try to speak English. So. Uh, some of our members don't speak English very fluently, but uh, uh, they are learning. They are learning now. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, I hope everyone to uh, learn something uh, very uh, passionately. So uh, that's, a, I think, good thing. So what about the other way? Would you would you hire a uh, English-speaking engineer who didn't speak Japanese at all, or do you sort of want everyone to be able to to meet in the middle? 
Well, uh, as I mentioned, as a software engineer, we require just uh, English skill. But yeah, uh, but usually, uh, as an engineer, we require both English and Japanese skills. Makes sense. Taka, what's been what's been your experience? Okay, on so we are like same as system. We have a pretty like mixed culture. We don't have the clear language policy, but uh, we use fifty percent Japanese and fifty percent English. But uh, about developers and product, uh, our CTO Ugo uh, is coming from France, and he leads the product also. So the product team is basically run by in English, like hundred percent English. Yeah. But most of your are most of your users Japanese. Yeah, users Japanese. But the product team itself is run in English. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, yes. Has yeah. that? Yeah. So you did. <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, I'm sure that was not a a that wasn't an obvious choice to be. We're going to put an English speaking, an English only project team in charge of a Japanese, uh, you know, a a product used by Japanese customers. So you can't just put a bunch of people in a room and expect it to work out. So to get to the point where that was functional, where that was really working, were there any yeah. kind of processes or onboarding that you figured you had to do to, to make that work? Mm. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, what's the point, sorry. No, no, I, so for example, you yeah. have to give, um, did you have to provide special training to get the, the different groups working together well? Did you have to provide language instruction? Were there any kind it, of special? Yeah, before we did, uh, we provide like uh, Japanese and English class Kindle uh, before starting the business day. But right now, I don't know why, but we just stopped uh, that kind of training. But that still, Jim uh, can learn in English. Okay, so it, yeah. it really just sort of happened naturally then. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'd, I'd chime in maybe just a little bit. Yeah. So I, th I thought, you know, Tez had a really interesting comment on the kind of hardware engineers versus software engineers. And I think there's a lot more software engineers that speak English more comfortably, partially because a lot of the documentation, other than maybe Ruby on Rails, one of the reasons that's still used here so heavily is that it had a lot of Japanese documentation. But, you know, in our case as well, we have a, a heavily English-speaking uh, product team. And it's because we're using a relatively modern stack. We're using full-stack JavaScript. And the majority of the documentation online, et cetera, is in English, and a lot of the people that then use that in Japan, um, you know, it's it's a smaller percentage of, of Japanese. So, you know, I, I think there's different ways to to bridge that, but I think that, you know, the customer facing element of it is different from say the hardware engineer, or in our case, like our growth marketing team, or our sales, or where the requirements are coming from. And so, we just need to make sure that we have the right uh, kind of project management structure that our team is enabled to actually work with and talk with our users. We've done some things where, for example, right now trying to translate some live streams that we have of feedback just so that the engineering team can kind of get um, more of a sense of what the users are actually thinking. So data is a great point, but we also have a lot of feedback that comes in the form of text. How do you handle, and I guess, I mean, this is more of a, a, a general question because I think all of you are going through it. So if you have an English-speaking product team that's serving a Japanese client base, how do you get that product team talking to your your clients who presumably don't speak English. See, that's why you have to have the bilingual teams in between. So our growth team that drives a lot of the things that we're building out from an SEO or from an infrastructure side, our UX person needs to be Japanese to work with the team and be bilingual. Our project managers need to be bilingual. We're hiring for bilingual project managers. Uh, <laughs> but You'll get your chance to yeah. pitch later. Yeah, we, we recently started you know, uh, the agile working, agile development process. You know, and, uh, uh, every team, you know, every product team has a you know, scrum, right? Uh, right? And then, you know, when we in the scrum, you know, how we need to buy talent to bridge the gap, because usually the marketing guy or product guy, you know, are more Japanese people and less English fluency, but the engineering people, you know, definitely, you know, uh, English environment, right? More engineers, more English speakers. Yeah. So but most uh, of your scrum meetings have a, a kind of dedicated interpreter there, or is it like one member of the team is kind really, of drafted into being? It the can be both. Okay. Yeah, it, it depends on the level of the <laughs> uh, English fluency. Yeah, and also the other thing is, you no know, documentation is definitely much easier, right, uh, for the Englishization. 
So, so we force, no, okay, every product team, no, uh, in terms of the product development related document must be English. So that's, no, kind of, we have a set of the rules, no, uh, starting recently, actually. <laughs> but but uh, uh, that's uh, easier to do. Uh, the other thing is, no, uh, America used to, know all the town halls, the like, uh, official communication is Japanese, uh, run in Japanese, but uh, interpreting to English, you know, uh, speakers, like 10% uh, like of the population, right? But uh, we realized, oh, wow, using interpretation is not the easy thing, right? It's a bit painful process, right, for, uh, for English speakers. So, okay, let's do have a English session. So, for especially, like, uh, any, like, HR-related sessions, when we, like, introduce some of the benefit things, no, we definitely have a English session uh, with Q English in the Q&A. No, we can address more concerns. No, we can answer the question more clearly. So that we really no value the uh, using the English direct communication. So, yeah. so rather than a bilingual but one, you have a separate one. Yeah. Oh, okay. So an interpreter. Well, I, I, I'm tr I really want to get your opinion on this because you have um, much more of an HR, a formal HR background than anyone else up here on stage. And so, do you think the success, the most important key to success for this, it sounds like it's mostly setting up the company structures correctly to facilitate that communication, but are there anything that you sort of critically have to do during the onboarding process or the, the hiring process to set expectations mm -hmm. for engineers that are coming on? Yeah. I think you know, it's not uh, you know, only uh, related to the nationalities or language speaking. But I think the most important thing is you know, how we can you know, uh, uh, make sure you know, every, every new hires really you know, uh, understand the mission of the company and also culture of the company. Right? So in Mercury, you know, we have three set of values, you know, which is you know, go bold, you know, all for one, uh, be pro, very simple. But uh, these are the common language you know, using for evaluation or for making any decision within the company. So these are the you know, uh, very specific you know, uh, principles you know, we rely on. So how we can make sure, you know, regardless of Japanese or non-Japanese, understand the culture and also guiding principle, and then we can share the values. So that's, I think, the most important thing. Okay. That makes sense. Tez, what's been, been your experience? Has it been the team sort of naturally came together, or did you have to take certain steps and certain policies to make this actually work out and make these multicultural teams work efficiently? Uh, in that sense, uh, in your company, in, in company, uh, most of the foreigners in your company, uh, they're young, uh, in their twenties. So, uh, they they can easily get together very well and go to a, a gokon. <laughs> <laughs> it's a meetup, meet and up. I I found that uh, it's a there's a. <laughs> <laughs> it's a kind of meetup. Uh, I've <laughs> I found a, a common character in them that uh, the uh, foreign foreign uh, robotics engineers uh, almost always like Japanese subculture, like Japanese anime. Oh, okay. So in in that sense, they can talk easily about Japanese anime, like Dragon Ball or some other animes. I don't know. <laughs> so okay, so it's just a a certain. A certain type of person is attracted to this job, so yeah, it yeah. makes it easy to create that culture. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm quite sure that uh, almost always the uh, engineers of robotics like Japanese anime or uh, robots in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Even more so than other engineers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, we, we've been talking a bit about... Uh, what we've done right and what people should do. But uh, for fun, I want to flip this around and ask about the biggest mistake you've made uh, and what you learned from it. And more importantly, what everyone else can learn from it. And um, Tatsu, you and I were chatting about this a bit beforehand. And I, yeah. I, I'd love to start with yours on this one. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, not that it was that big a mistake. It was a, it was a, a good mistake, yeah, it's a, a beneficial process, one. Right? Exactly. So, America has a six years you know, history behind and There's so many a triumph there, right? And uh, I think one of the mistakes you know, uh, we made is we hired lots of people from overseas, especially like uh, uh, people from India, like a new graduate, like IIT. 
And uh, if a company's decision, okay, you know, uh, we have a, a mission to go global, and then we definitely would like to have a more like, uh, you know, people from uh, outside Japan, and uh, IIT seems a very nice you know, talent pool. Okay, we go, and initially, you know, uh, it, the hiring target is like, okay, trying like a few, or like a five, and then 10, and become 20, and then, then a higher 30, actually, end up. And it's a quite, you know, global decision uh, without you know, experiencing, you know, uh, without understanding what mean to hire those, you know, fresh new graduates from India, uh, and then just made the offer to 30, more than 30 people, right? We almost without thinking, you know, uh, seriously <laughs> as a go board, right? But what happened is, okay, after we offered, of course, you know, they asked so many questions, right? And then we realized, okay, we need uh, some sort of process <laughs> to support their onboarding, especially, you know, of course, not only visa, but also, okay, how they can make a life, right, uh, in Japan. And of course, you know, uh, they need to find somewhere to live, and they need to, you know, okay, how they can found, uh, like, a chicken raking, for example. So there are so many, you know, local things you know, needed, they need support because they don't have any living experience in Japan uh, before, before this offer. So that's a you know, big life-changing life thing for them. And also it's for, for us, you know, we didn't have any process at all. And we couldn't create it from scratch after we offered. Oh, so the big, <laughs> the big shock was not so much absor absorbing them into the company and into the company culture, but... but teaching them how to live a life in Japan and yeah. all the things that exist yeah. outside the company. Mm, yeah, so that's part of it. But also, of course, you know, supporting uh, you know, how to live in Japan is part of it, but also you know, uh, how to you know, uh, make a uh, you know, professional life you know, in the you know, Japanese working environment, that's also the, the next step, right? So, and then, you know, because of the learning, you know, okay, we created a, you know, a kind of special uh, kind of training group within the engineering function, you know, only really focusing on the people from overseas. Uh, hired people from overseas, and they really helped, you know, uh, not just only a programming, you know, uh, language, you know, skill development, but also how to work, right, as a professional. <laughs> so that's uh, very basic things that we need that, because there are, you know, uh, many other people without working experience. So they need more, you know, detailed support uh, mm -hmm. rather than, uh, rather than uh, experience to hire. So, so in the end, did you, are you still hiring uh, as aggressively overseas? Or did you kind of scale back? Yeah, yeah. We we had a now capability <laughs> to support, but we also realized uh, it's a huge effort and you know needed for from both sides. Okay, we need to be careful in terms of now hiring numbers. So <laughs> <laughs> we have lessons learned. Yeah, but we can also found out wow, you know, uh, there there are definitely good talent you know, uh, available outside Japan. So we just continue. So that's yeah. for sure. Tez, what about what about you? Can you, is there anything you look back on and say, that was a stupid mistake, but I learned a lot from it? Oh, yes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, the second engineer uh, in our company was uh, French, and uh, my mistake was I demanded him to be very punctual. <laughs> ah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's impossible. Yeah. So some yeah. cultures, some cultures are better at that than others. Yeah, our company were supposed to start from ten o'clock in the morning, but he always came uh, like ten twenty, ten thirty, and always complaining that train was late. <laughs> that doesn't work in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So I insisted you, you should uh, leave earlier. That's a, that's a point, <laughs> but he he got angry and we we kind of argued like every week. How long did it take before you realized that the problem was a cultural problem and not a personal problem? Oh, uh, still I can't figure out that this is a personal problem or a <laughs> cultural problem. But but uh, later on I kind of. Uh, uh, take it easy about uh, punctuality, so I I can accept ten minutes late if somebody. Uh, I think that's, but I I think that is really critical, uh, especially at small startups before you get big and have processes, that you you do have to kind of keep that in mind, not just about punctuality, but about anything about 
going out drinking after work or about uh, you know weekly meetings because different cultures view those very differently yeah that's true and oh yeah I clearly found that he lived uh, far from the, our office but I live very near <laughs> like 10 minutes <laughs> by work so how did it how did it end up did he end up coming in on time or did you just kind of accept the fact that he's always going to be 20 minutes late to work oh no no he just quit the job oh, oh. <laughs> So next time, from after that, you learned the lesson. Yeah, All right. definitely. Um, Taka, what about you? Okay, so uh, before starting my story, I'm just I, we have three French engineers in our company. So <laughs> I am the professional uh, for working with French. Oh. And and then no, no, anyway, anyways. So the mistake, um, I think it's kind of. A not stupid uh, mistake, but it's general mistake for uh, seed startups. Uh, like a year, I want to say a year and a half ago, uh, we are de we were developing SaaS for freight forwarders. And at that time, we didn't know the detailed operation of freight forwarders, and we rely on one like client at that time too much, and. Like uh, we always ask those uh, feedback from that client, and, and we really started to find the MVP. And at that time, so we couldn't find uh, the MVP for SaaS for like for forwarders. Then what happened was that like <coughs> the we can't we, we couldn't say no because we had only one client and. Our like product team is really like frustrated because we like not only product team but also whole team couldn't explain what's the MVP for our company like minimal minimum variable product right yeah so I mean it must have felt like you're implementing your your one client's vision rather yeah. than the team's vision yeah 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 so that's why yeah so how did that how did that work out uh, finally we just started to provide actual logistics and we done a lot of operations and finally we got the license of freight forwarders from Japanese government and we started like this freight forwarding kind of. So mostly just, just sticking through it and yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, um, listen, I wanna make sure that we have enough time for everyone to ask questions afterwards. So what I wanna do is I wanna just ask, you know, relatively, Briefly, if there is like one key piece of advice that, wait a minute, I don't think I asked Jordan that question, did I? I know you've screwed up. <laughs> We've talked about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I've learned a lot. I continue to learn a lot every day. So I think one of the best parts of doing a startup. Um, I, I think in the context of, you know, HR and recruiting, um, at the very beginning of the company, you know, finding your co-founders, finding your earlier employees is really... It's, you kind of get to know people, right? You go out, you drink, and you become friends, and it's kind of like dating, right? And, and you get to know each other better and better, and you're like, oh, let's start and let's do this together. And I think for the first several employees, um, that was actually fine, right? Those were our, you know, our, our cultural co-founders, to say. And uh, after that, the problem was we started to you know, raise a little bit of money. We started to actually hire via other channels other than just introductions. Um, but it was still a very kind of casual uh, introduction. Oh, does this make sense? Is this what you want to do? Is this what we want to do? The stars align. Um, and I think we had a very laissez-faire approach to uh, recruiting. Obviously, we wanted to work with the best people, and we knew that culture was very important. Uh, but we had this idea of just like a trial period. So I was like, oh, well, you come by after work. You know, we'll get together on the weekends, and we'll make it, uh, and, and we'll see if it's a good fit or not. And I think we, we quickly learned that there was importance of, according to saying at of having these kind of core competencies well-defined, right? What do we actually value? What is our culture? Actually defining that, I think as we became kind of from 10 to 30 people, that was really a point where having that better defined really helped us make the right hires and also helped uh, attract the right people in the, in the first place, right? So making it clear, yes, we are a meritocracy. Yes, we are maybe the opposite of a lot of Japanese companies, even though we're going after this, uh, you know, this space in Japan. Um, and yeah, so I think what we really learned was just, despite many startups not liking process, that there is, in, you know, it's important to have the right amount 
of um of, of process, especially so when it comes to hiring. Don't be scared of documenting the processes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think there's many good things that you don't need to learn time and time again in terms of hiring. And hiring isn't something that necessarily scales without process, right? If you want it for ten different people to interview somebody and to be able to come back with a similar, you know, scorecard fit, you know, how do they fit when it comes to ownership or teamwork or problem solving? Um, I could interview and have those questions and have an idea, but maybe somebody else would have a different idea if that wasn't a process. So as much as I hate process, I think that we need to learn that some process is, uh, helps us not have to other others. All right. Well, listen, before we open it up to Q&A, what I, what I do want to get from, from each of you is if there was just one or two core pieces of advice that you could give to other startup founders or other people running startups that they need to understand in order to build a, a functional team, to build a successful team, what would that advice be? And uh, Tatsuyo, I'm gonna start with you. Yeah, so I think uh, the one keyword, which is trust. Right? So this is uh, the most you know, uh, important you know, uh, uh, things you know, we need to do you know, uh, to understand each other uh, with a different background. And then to create trust, you know, like when we do like onboarding, you know, we do like a mentorship you know, program, like a buddy, buddy program. We do a culture orientation. Uh, and also we do a more data-driven approach, you know, okay, in terms of like a Japanese or non-Japanese, you know, okay, how much, you know, uh, their engagement score is different or not different. So we can, you know, kind of gauge you know, how much trust, you know, the people have to the company or to the, to the manager or to the, uh, to the group associated. But uh, we really you know, uh, are glad, you know, so far, in terms of like a retention rate or pulse survey, anything, you know, non-Japanese, Japanese, there is no difference. Oh, wow. So okay. that's why, and also it's a quite high engage, engagement organization. That's why, you know, I'm so confident, you know, oh, wow, we, there is a high level of trust in the organization, and we like to keep it. Yeah. Okay. Jordan, you just made a great point about uh, process. Do you want to stick on that one, or...? or? I think Put I'll a double on red. It's yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, culture is very important. Um, the people that you hire, I mean, some of the most important decisions that you make are the members that you hire. And I think just the one thing I would say is it's, it's very easy when you're trying to go fast and you have a lot of targets you're trying to hit to rush and make hiring decisions. Um, but they'll, it's, it's never in your best interest long term. And so I would just say that if the right hire is not there, instead of compromising on your qualities in a hire, um, is to find some other way to band-aid the process or to use a consultant or use someone external uh, as you figure out what you do need, right? And I think we've done that a few times in terms of saying, hey, we don't know what we need in an HR person, um, hence we'll hire a few people um, as part-time consultants. So we have, like, right now we have a part-time happiness manager, a part-time shadoshi, and a part-time internal recruiter. And, um, and that's helped us understand exactly what we need in those roles as we go after our first full-time HR director. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think... Yeah, I just never compromise on your values uh, when it comes to hiring because those are other people will join the organization because of the people in the company. So you will have want to have the best people that represent your yeah. culture. Excellent. That makes a lot. I, I like that idea of hiring part time until you find that right, that perfect fit. Excellent. Tez, what did, what would you advise? Well, um, in the end, I think uh, communication is a key to work with uh, other people. So uh, uh, to do that, uh, I think we should have a good place or, uh, in other words, feed to uh, directly uh, say something in the mind. Uh, in our case, we, we communicate uh, eating takoyakis, which are cooked by our robots. So oh, wow. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, soft serve ice cream. <laughs> Our robots cook takoyaki, soft serve ice cream, and um, uh, some other things are coming. Uh, anyways, uh, so I think it is very, very important to uh, have such place, uh, uh, not outside of the company, but inside the company, we can communicate very uh, relaxingly uh, and communi enhance communication. Yeah, so let people talk to each other outside of the normal working roles. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Taka? Yeah, um, same, uh, same as Tatsu. I think at the, yeah, uh, we, I, I'm, I think over communication is really key. 
to build a great team. And to achieve those over communication, I think, uh, like, for example, our culture is uh, one of the key to achieve those over communication because we, we hire basically only strong people, kind of strongness, because <coughs> if people are afraid to get the feedback or to feedback things, then there's no communication. So <coughs> uh, our people, like even Japanese, they can, uh, they always can say uh, stop or no or ask the question if they don't understand. Just uh, ask and discuss the, the topics or epics. And yeah. Yeah. So to get get people. Make sure they're willing to talk and comfortable talking in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right, listen, I, I want to give uh, all our panelists a big round of applause. And let's let's open it up for, for Q&A. Do we have someone running a microphone? We do? Excellent. So hands up and a microphone will run your way. Um, right, right in the back. We're making a run way across the room. Hi, uh, thank you for the microphone. My name is Raymond from Raymond Capital. I'm currently setting up uh, offices with contractors in New York, Austin, San Francisco, and Tokyo. Um, as I'm finding that my technology background is not coming into play and more of my people management skills are coming into play. And as I'm working with not only a diverse set of skills with diff different languages, I'm also working with different regions. So um, not only there's time difference, but let's say like the guy in California, because he's surfing at Huntington Beach, is 10 minutes late to the meeting, I gotta deal with that. Meanwhile, the guy in New York is joining the crew team for Columbia, and this is, even though he's on contract, he's working part-time on this. And the Tokyo guy here is on time to every meeting, he's, he's doing all the work we need to, the quality we're still working on, the language we're bridging. Um, it's super diverse. So um, I've implemented policies that have only been applied to certain regions. And at some points, I've had to reverse those policies because I get conflict because it's very diverse. My question is, was there ever a policy that you had to reverse in order to deal with scale that um, you have to go back on? How did you handle it as a, a businessman of yourselves? So a policy directly related to kind of the multicultural aspect of, of mm. different teams. So, Tez, do you want to answer that? Because it sounds like you've got the most direct experience on how to best handle. So you talked about one employee who was had different ideas than you did about certain policies. But have you been in a situation where you've had like a functional team where everyone has different ideas, and how do you handle that? Uh, it's uh, difficult to answer, but I think um, too much punctuality for foreigners are uh, very risky. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, um, uh, yeah, right now uh, we are uh, fortunately scaling, growing. So uh, we we have been focusing on speed, uh, uh, like fail fast, uh, fail for something like that. But now, uh, since we uh, we make robots to work, so this robot uh, shouldn't uh, be dangerous or unreliable. So now we have to make sure the robot is safe and work reliably. And sometimes we have to. Uh, work very slowly, uh, deliberately. Uh, I think that's one thing we are now. Uh, so it's, I guess it's, it sounds like it's sort of case by case. Sometimes it's okay to be flexible and, and back off the policy, but sometimes, like in terms of the quality assurance you're talking about, yeah, you just really need to enforce those policies and make yes. it work. Excellent. Does anyone else? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh. Uh, just chime in quickly. So I, I think you know I'm, despite having to make culture, uh, you know, uh, you know, structure sometimes. I'm very generally anti-rule to begin with. And I think when you have a very small organization, I think the most important thing is that for every person, 
how are they going to be measured in terms of their performance? How are they going to decide if you're going to continue to hire them or if you're going to give them a pay raise or anything else like that? And I would be very strict on that and not as strict on other things that aren't going to make as much of a difference, especially if there's only one person in each location. Probably the, if you could create endless policies, you can create a, like when we had to make our Shigo Kisoku in Japan, which is like your rule book after 10 people, like we consulted multiple people. Everyone was like 60 to 70 pages on, on average. And we fought to make it one page because you could have endless rules, but if nobody knows what they are and they're not actually going to contribute to people performing better, then there's no actual real purpose to them. So my, my advice would just be, as much as possible, just ask yourself for every policy and rule, does that help that person hit that performance metric? Um, and if it's a must, like something like safety, et cetera, then have that in place. But if it's a nice to have, then have that just be a suggestion or idea and make it clear how they are going to be evaluated from a performance perspective. We, like, we're very much a meritocracy, and we tell people that we're very strict when it comes to the numbers and the performance, but we're not strict on pretty much everything else. Answer my question. I like the answer. Thank you. Actually, Mercury follows that, that principle you know, for the last six years. Yeah, and really, really minimum, <laughs> minimum rules, yeah. yeah. So, and then I think it's great, you know, more flexibility and also more freedom and because it's based on trust, right? I think the most important thing is, you know, uh, the psychological uh, safety, you know, every, every, every employee you know, uh, must have. And that creates more openness, more innovations, uh, more uh, performance. Uh, and then the most important thing is I think you should be uh, outcome-driven, right? So if you know uh, everybody needs to contribute and outcome driven, I think you know you can have a differently you know uh, type of message to deliver. But uh, definitely, how to work it should respect each other and you know should be more flexible about it. Excellent, great. Next next question, um, in the back in the red. You talked about. Uh, bringing 30 or 20 or 30 people from India and then dealing with all their visas and everything. Um, my question is, um, in this day and age, why would you bring somebody all the way, you know, uproot them and bring to your own country when you can do all this? Most of the development stuff you can do remotely. So did you try that? Did, didn't you try that? If you try it, what were the drawbacks? And if you didn't try it, why didn't you try it? And um, secondly, um, another question, um, which you have uh, partially actually answered, uh, actually reversed your position. You said that you said uh, you said processes, and you're very strict with the processes. But in answering the other gentleman, uh, you said uh, the gentleman next to you actually he said that. Uh, he have minimum processes, uh, um, rules. So at first he had su suggested that these are strict processes. They are rules, but what he's suggesting now that those rules are actually frameworks and they fluctuate as uh, depending upon the KPIs that are registered by an individual worker or a contributor, you would say. So. They are rules, but they are in evolution. How do you judge those evolution? How do you determine that the evolution is going in a positive direction? Thank you. Okay, let me answer quickly. Yeah. yeah. For, for second questions, no, I didn't say you know uh, three Yeah, that's, that's actually yeah. Two, towards oh, him. All right, yeah. Got it. So it's more like I know when like Medical is scaling up the you know, organization. I think we need uh, more structure. Yeah, we need to you know, do the guiding principle. So that's what I said. Um, first questions? No, I think we considered, you know, uh, of course, you know, we can remote you know, location type of the organization. But uh, we believe, you know, to create a culture, uh, to share the common values, you know, we need to work together more face to face. And after we, uh, we build trust, maybe it's more easier to you know, work remotely. So that's kind of our uh, basic you know, uh, principle uh, we currently we have. So maybe in the future, maybe we consider. But uh, right now, you know, we kind of have to uh, kind of uh, spend our time within the same working environment and create, you know, uh, one product you know, uh, with a mission base. Yeah. So do the other okay. other panelists uh, share the same um, uh, opinion? Uh, do uh, have they tried uh, remote uh, developers uh, or project management teams or some, something well, like that? 
I'll um I'll actually throw my own experience, but I want to I want to have time for just one more question. My own experience has been that uh, remote teams uh, are less productive than on-site teams, and the best way to get remote site teams productive is you've got to keep bringing ambassadors to the the main headquarters. Otherwise, they get disconnected. So it's it's possible, but it's another layer of administration on top of it. But I, I, we've got time for one well, more. Well, well, just, uh, I'm sorry. No, I'm, just... I'm sorry. We got we really have time for one more question. Um, yes, up in front. I'm making our mic person really run all over the place here. As the mic comes, I would just say to to take a look at the uh, Netflix culture guide. They talk about how the process increases as the um, you know. And, and you know, as a way to combat complexity, but how that's not really a great idea in the long term. Lots of times, we'll talk later. Uh, thank you. So I'm Zineb. I'm a French and against all odds, apparently, uh, I show up on time <laughs> and maybe ten minutes ahead of everyone. <laughs> so, uh, so I work at LK Consulting, and I've been recruited as a life science specialist because I'm an academician, a researcher. And my concern is, um, well, I have been, as you mentioned, like for software engineers, I've been hired as specialists, but I can see sort of glass ceiling, but in going in upper management, middle management and high management, because you need to manage Japanese people at some point, right? And is, is it, isn't it true that this is a barrier uh, for non-bilingual talent? I'm particularly interested in what our, our Japanese startup founders have to say about this. So. Do you think that a, a foreign hire could become a CEO or COO level or a very senior position in your organization? Or do you think that would require, I mean, practically, do you think that would require native Japanese? Uh, let me answer that question quickly. Because, uh, for example, our CTO, Ugo, he will make a pitch later, but uh, he's one of the our management team and he actually managed Japanese people right now. So I think it's possible. All right. Yeah. Yeah, we already have some you know, non-Japanese managers you know, uh, leading engineering team, including Japanese talent. So there is no, no, any difference, any difference, yeah. Just depends on the role and function, right? We probably never have a head of sales that doesn't speak Japanese, but that's one point. Right? Yeah, I think you get to a point where you can be presentable uh, in another language, or you can be, uh, you know, able to represent the company and their hiring needs. It's probably the point you need to get to. But I think all of Japan is is changing that way. In my own role, um, so I'm also CTO of Tepco Ventures. As a foreigner in a very conservative Japanese company, it's it's fine. You have to be able to communicate in Japanese and play all the you know the Japanese roles you're required to or at least make a good effort to do so but even, it, it's very even, open even we have a non-Japanese manager without the Japanese language fluency yeah. so that's the yeah we just have more of those cases yeah. okay. thank you well listen there is never enough time to answer everyone's questions but all of us are going to be hanging around for a little bit so you can like corner us around the room and ask any follow-up questions you like but uh, let's give our panelists another huge round of applause. And thanks very much.